Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. Hello, everyone, and yes, welcome once again to the MRI cast. We are so glad you're joining us. We again want to thank Bronco for their unrestricted educational grant. Today, we have a very special treat for you today. Joining Kristen and I. Hello, everybody. <laughs> welcome. Joining Kristen and I once again. The Wisconsin Badger himself, Dr. Howard Raleigh. Hello, Howard. <laughs> well, hello, Bill and Kristen, and, and, and thank you to all the normal humans who've joined us today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's good to have some normalcy here. Well, what we're going to talk about today is a brand new gadolinium-based contrast agent that was approved uh, by the FDA for use in the U.S. uh, late last year, but now is available for sale from a couple of different companies. The, uh, we'll give you the name here, the the chemical name, which is what we'll likely refer to most of the time, because this is what we've been talking about for the last year or so, is gadopiclinol. And the trade names are uh, for Bracco Diagnostics is Vue, and for uh, Gerbet is Elucerem. So again, it's it's the the same chemical compound. It's just sold in two different trade formulations by each one of these companies, and so we're just going to likely refer to it as gadopiclinol. Does that sound like a good idea for you guys? Sounds good, Bill. I think it's the easiest, yes. It would be the easiest. Okay. So uh, let's talk about this because this is, at least in my viewpoint, and, and I would like to get your your view on this as well, uh, Howard and Kristen. This is a major uh, change in terms of capabilities, upgrade, if you will, major upgrade to gadolinium-based contrast agents. And I want to kind of walk through how we got here, but to me, this is a, what I would consider a generational, if you will, from an MR standpoint, uh, significant development. Howard, your thoughts? I totally agree with you, Bill. It's uh, as much as it pains me to say that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, you got to do it. You got to do it, right? But, you know, uh, looking at this over decades now, uh, starting with Magnavist, uh, when we had to consent people under clinical trials, all the way up through uh, generations of the first generation contrast agents, and then in, I believe it was 2004, Multihance came along, which was uh, the first high relaxivity agent. Um, and then uh, macrocyclic uh, uh, agents started to, to come in more commonly. Uh, uh, this is this represents a real sea change. It's, uh, 
it's as we'll talk about has a lot of very favorable uh, characteristics for imaging, and uh, we're we're excited about uh, this new agent. Well, I, I totally agree with both of you, and the second one Howard said, but just add Howard into that um, as far as agreeing. But no, I think that it's um, it's huge, and I think it's it's huge in, in so many areas. It's it's hard even just to to dive into one during this one hour podcast. And um, not just the current capabilities of but what we have to look forward to as the future comes. And, and so, you know, when, when I started um, doing MRI and, and imaging, all we had um, really to work with was one agent. And that's what everything was based upon and throughout, you know, time uh, and science and changes. Now we have all of these different agents. And then some of the agents have dropped off the market, which I think it's important to discuss kind of. The history of that and now we've arrived at a place that it's kind of like this is in my opinion a game changer and um, a way that we handle things you know and make decisions you know we've got you the the, the amazing you know neuroradiologist with us Howard you know it's a game changer as far as making decisions on um giving gadolinium, how much gadolinium to give, um, what's, you know, how much you're going to be able to see with what type of dose. And I just think that, you know, diving into a few of those areas, at least today is, is really going to be important. But I also think it's important to kind of go back a little bit and discuss, you know, the different groups of agents and what's dropped off and kind of where we're at and why we're here. Well, one, one way to look at that, you know, what, when I was, uh, when I was coming up, and uh, somebody was teaching me how to give a talk. You know, they said, yeah, you don't want to get people too lost in the weeds. So tell them what you're going to say and then say it and then tell them what you said. So if I might, I'll just begin with kind of an overview of a, just a few points on gadopiclinol that I want people to keep in mind and see if what we say supports what I'm about to summarize. But this this new agent has the highest kinetic stability of any gadolinium agent on the market. It's macrocyclic, so that's excellent. It has the highest relaxivity, which is the bang for your buck that gives you the enhancement you're giving the agent for to begin with. It has the highest number of approved indications by the FDA throughout the body. And in the CNS, uh, central nervous system trials so far, it has superior enhancement at half dose compared to a full dose of uh, either multi-hance or gadivist. And so uh, at the approved dose, there's a lower exposure to gadolinium, yet equal or better performance compared to these, even the best agents we have up until now. So it checks a lot of very exciting boxes for me. Well, you know, the dose thing, and you bring that up, I think this is really important for for those listening who may not be aware of where we got to. And I, I've heard this, I've heard this in the past. I did a little research um, and found that this was kind of actually the case. And I'm going to go all the way back to 1998. In 1998, when the first agents introduced, the first agent introduced worldwide was Magnavis. That's what I, you know, when I got into MRI, I thought, great, no more contrast media. Oh, here we go. You know, okay, now we're going to give them something. 
And then I thought, no more putting anything in the rectum. Now here comes an endorectal coil, but that's for another podcast. No way. Thankfully, Wasn't we don't. 1988, Bill, I think. I Did I say 98? Yes. I, I apologize if I did. All right. Then I miss I misspoke. Thank you. We're going to keep you, for listening. Keep you honest here, Bill. Well, you, you have to. <laughs> Kristen obviously doesn't listen to me. Somebody's listening to me. Did you say 98? <laughs> I did. Probably did. I probably did. I'm getting old. I thought wise. I started with with Magnavis, and I started in '95. And what's he talking about? But he's old, and he says things wrong. And I'm just going to hope people buy it. Well, I know, and I'm sitting here looking at the date myself. I'm just looking at it on my on my screen here. (laughs) My notes. I know. There you go. All right, 1998. Um, 88. Did it again. Oh my gosh, I <laughs> hope you graduated high school and I can still create. Yeah, well, here we go. So anyway, in investigative radiology, uh, this uh, trial was published where they were looking for a, a dose, you know, optimal dose for this new uh, contrast agent for MRI. And it was a pharmacologic study in healthy volunteers. And um, this is what's interesting. To verify these findings, to determine time course and to assess the probability of drug relationship, a single-blinded random crossover study in 12 healthy male volunteers. So females were actually too smart to volunteer for this, but 12 (laughs) healthy males, they're probably from the South. It was kind of like, here, hold my beer and watch this. Um, What they did was they did uh, just a dose study and they compared 0.25 millimole per kilogram, which is slightly more than double of what uh, we would have been historically would be giving people, uh, to 0.1 millimole per kilogram. And this was with Magnavist. And what they were looking, uh, basically what they found was that at 0.1, there's 12 people now, mind you, um, 0.1 millimole per kilogram body weight suggested that serum iron and bilirubin increases with that dose were less frequent and less marked than increases shown in the study at, at 0.25. So in other words, when they gave a person 0.25 millimole per kilogram body weight, they had an increase in serum iron and bilirubin. And they said, no, 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 no we care like that. Let's just go with 0.1. And then, um, and I'm going to get something I want to ask Howard's uh, input on this because this is this is back when he was in the uh, in that part of his career where you know he was in the early days of this um, in 1990, and I'm correct in that. I'm looking at it, you know, again to make sure. Uh, they were looking at the optimization of DTPA dose, and they did 33 patients with brain tumors, okay? So they took 33 patients. They randomized them into three groups. Group one was given a dose of 0.25, which we would consider quarter dose of what we've been used to giving. And then group two was given 0.025, which we would consider half 0.05, which we would consider half dose of what we've been giving. And then group three was given 0.1 millimole per kilogram gadolinium DTPA, which is magnavis, probably what we 
are used to giving. And what they found was diagnostically useful tumor delineation was obtained in two out of 11. So only two people out of 11 in the 0.025 group got any benefit. In the second group, which was 0.05, seven out of 11 beneficial information. And in group three, which is 0.1, 10 out of 11. They also did a further increase of to 0.2, i.e. double what we're used to giving, in group three. And that resulted in further increase and improved tumor delineation in one case. So basically, they looked at all those, and this is their, the statement. The statement says, as a result of these findings, a dose of 0.1 millimole uh, gadolinium DTPA per kilogram body weight is recommended. 33 patients, and they set the dose, and that's where we've been ever since. So that's how we got here today based on not many more patients than what I'm looking at. And Howard, you remember these days, right? This is yeah, absolutely. where it all kind of started. And and so it was it was a little bit arbitrary, you know, based on small numbers of patients, but it seemed like at least they'd done a dose ranging study and had some basis for it. And this 0.1 millimoles per kilo became the amount of gadolinium uh, that was injected for all agents moving forward uh, until until gadopiclinol came along. Uh, of course, what, that's the approved dose uh, by the FDA, and we know that once things hit the market, uh, there can be adoption of uh, alterations in dose depending on clinical circumstances, individual patient needs, and and uh, off-label uh, evidence that says that it's going to work at say a higher or even a lower dose, but 0.1 millimole per kilo is the standard dose for gadolinium up until now. Right. And that's, that's also based on the, we'll talk about molar concentration a little bit later, but that's based on the concentration of the agents at that time. In the U.S., Howard, correct me if I'm wrong, the second agent in the U.S. that was introduced, if I'm not mistaken, was Prohance. Is that correct? I think it came along in 92. Um, I'm not sure when Omniscan was approved. It might have been between those two. Uh, it was pretty early on as well. So. Okay. So so Omniscan, well, that's, that's an interesting point with this. So Omniscan is a linear non-ionic agent, and we'll talk about stability and stuff later, but a linear non-ionic, let's just say it, uh, it this point is has got the weakest stability on on the market, and actually, I think I think OmniScan might have came on second because here's why: when Prohance was introduced, I remember uh, Prohance being macrocyclic. So in the U.S., you have linear ionic, which was Magnavist. You have linear then you have linear non-ionic which was OmniScan um, at the time. And then then coming along is the first macrocyclic in the U.S., which was Prohance. And I remember one of the representatives saying to me when I was doing presentations and stuff on gadolinium back in those days, the the rep was said to me, Bill, you're going to talk about the stability of the chelate? And I would say, sure, if you can tell me what that means. <laughs> I mean, literally, if you can tell me what that means. If you can 
tell me why I would bring this up. Howard, do you remember those kind of conversations? I certainly do. Conversations about ligands, like a ligature that you taught me, mm -hmm. like a tie, something that ties yep. up. The chelate is the uh, the combination of the organic ligand plus the gadolinium and uh, together, they sort of chaperone the gadolinium through the body and help it distribute where you want it to go, extracellular space, and then help you clear it. So it's, it's uh, and that's what differs with all these agents. They have a different ligand structure. They're all using the same molecular gadolinium. And so, you know, like I said, you know, it was telling me, well, you know, it, it, it's more stable. And okay. Cool. And less stable means what? I mean, Kristen, do you remember any talk of stability back in those days? I mean, this is this is early on. And when when people were talking about stability, it was kind of like, OK, and it means what, you know? Yeah, what's going to be the end result? I did just want to say I don't know a lot about the early days because that was early. I know for you're me young. Too. Yes, I'm not going to yeah. go there with either one of you, but I do know that Prohance was 1992 and Omniscan was 1993 because that's common knowledge. And you know, well, I'm well, excuse you know me. I'm telling you, what, I'll bet you two bucks Excuse me. What I'm going to say is that I'm weird with dates. Okay, I am. And, we don't want to get into who you're dating, Kristen. Exactly. Because I've heard those are pretty weird. I mean, that's what okay. I've. Well, no, and right. also, don't don't get me on stability, right? I'm a woman. I'm not sorry. I'm not, not going to lump everybody in my category. But um, <laughs> yes, sorry. I just wanted to make sure we clarified. That it was. It was 92 for Prohance. And there is no question. Okay. It is. It was 93 for Omniscan. So, and that's oh, yeah. in the United States. I don't know anything about, you know, overseas, but um, wow. yes, now I'm, I'm lost <laughs> with the stability portion. Um, uh, what did I think about stability? I think was the question. Um, well, no, I didn't really know what it encompassed, you know, you know, was, you know, was it about the agent? What, what was it going to do? Yes. I, I was, I had no idea because I don't think anybody was quite sure. Right. I mean, it didn't, you know, tell me what it means. And, exactly. um, and so interestingly enough, so I want to go back to, to dose and then I'll come back to some interesting things about stability before we move forward. <clears throat> In um, 1994, a study was published in uh, JMRI uh, lead author, Dr. Val Runge, uh, and I think this was when he was up in Nashville uh, at, at Vandy, uh, published a paper that showed increasing the dose of uh, with Prohance from, they would do a study with 0 0.1 millimole per kilogram, and then they would repeat it with uh, an additional 0 0.2 for a total of 0 0.3. And it was found that if you give more, you see more. And b before I get some feedback from Howard on this, just to remind everybody listening, when we were talking about a gadolinium-based contrast agent, you don't see the effect of gadolinium. I'm sorry, you don't see the gadolinium agent. You see the effect of the gadolinium agent. And the gadolinium agents uh, incorporate in their inner sphere a single water molecule, at least the ones up to this point, a single water molecule incorporated in their inner sphere. And this results in a uh, 
reduction or shortening of the T1 relaxation time of the water-based hydrogen protons. So if you give more gadolinium, you are actually involving more water molecules. And if you can involve more water molecules, then you're going to get a more noticeable effect. And this is why the Prohance then had or obtained labeled indications for higher dose. And it's also interesting what other agent at the time had a uh, indication for higher dose. And I'll move it back to Howard on that for comments. Well, again, uh, the dose is uh, on label for Prohance. You can go up to triple dose, and that's still on label as far still as valid. Know. Yep. Now, uh, a lot of other agents, uh, you know, observed, uh, folks observed that this gave you better enhancement, and particularly for some challenging indications like peripheral MRA and so forth, uh, several groups, including our own, in the early days uh, decided to use higher dose, triple dose, or even more um, of gadolinium for uh, using when using other agents that we had on the shelf when we were using in the practice. So, for example, Omniscan at high dose, which uh, really did work very well uh, in terms of the imaging. But of course, then the other shoe dropped, and we recognized after years of that uh, that some patients, uh, almost exclusively those with severe renal failure, uh, developed this rare complication called nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. Even in that high-risk group, even with very high doses, the risk was only around 4%, but uh, it could be quite serious or even fatal. So that really changed our view of, you know, uh, I think, Bill, you've said this isn't holy water. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it does have complications, potential complications, which have been thought to be related to dissociation of the metal from from its ligand. Interestingly enough, once this started, where uh, people were giving higher dose for contrast-enhanced MRA, which was coming out about that same time, then we got some really interesting studies that came along and showed that uh, one in particular that came out of... Um, New York, I believe, uh, and it was Dr. Martin Prince. Um, this study showed that um, they had a group of patients that had uh, shown a uh, a high uh, or, or low, I'm sorry, low colometric calcium test. And so these people were uh, diagnosed based on a laboratory test called colometric calcium shown to have severe hypocalcemia. Calcium is a real critical uh, mineral in the body, metal in the body, and it is involved in neuromuscular transmission, things like that. People who are hypocalcemic can have a lot of significant uh, issues. And so these people were treated for hypocalcemia, low calcium, when in fact they didn't have it. And it, found, it, it was discovered that these people had received OmniScan in a short period of time prior to them doing calcium testing, and it was more significant in patients who had received a, a double dose of OmniScan, and this was 
several years before NSF was actually published, and this was all linked to NSF. And I remember I was actually managing the MR uh, Center at, at uh, Erlanger Medical Center in Chattanooga here. We were using OmniScan. And I remember when the study came out, and it, it was the talk of the town, if it were. And so uh, the distributor of OmniScan comes out with these yellow stickers that says, basically, I've had OmniScan, don't test my calcium. You know, and that, that was our answer, was stick this on the chart. But if you looked at the paper, the paper was very, very, very clear. The paper stated that this was uh, felt to be due to, or shown to be due to something called transmetallation, where the, uh, and, and again, Howard, you're going to have to help me out here because I'm a little over my head here in, in this one, believe it or not, um, <laughs> in that the uh, regent that's used in the colometric calcium has some zinc in it. And so when they introduced that into the blood sample, the zinc would transmetallate, meaning Exchange. The zinc would take exchange, take the place of the gadolinium on the on the ligand, and so the the therefore it would mess up the colometric uh, calcium test, and this was due to the instability of OmniScan, clearly due to the instability of OmniScan, and so the answer was, don't test my calcium just yet. Because they yeah. actually had normal calciums. It was just a, a an artifact of this test in the lab uh, because they had enough omniscan and gadolinium around that it, it uh, exchanged with the ions that were being used for the test and the, the quantification of calcium. So it wasn't, they weren't really low in their calcium, but a lot of people got treated and giving you too much calcium can be bad. So this was recognized as a problem that was almost certainly related to the stability and instability of uh, OmniScan in terms of letting go of that gadolinium ion. In fact, OmniScan is is so unstable that uh, it it requires a, additional ligand, free ligand in the bottle just to extend the shelf life. This has also been known for years. And this, by the way, was known before NSF. And then one more thing before NSF train wreck hit us was there were multiple, there were several studies, at least two studies, that compared patients who had received OmniScan, patients who had received Prohance, bone marrow tissue, and found that patients in the last ladder of the two studies, the patients who had received uh, OmniScan had up to four times greater amount of gadolinium in bone tissue than patients who had received Prohance. This was known prior to NSF. That's right. I know my, I think Mike Tweedle said it best. He was, you know, in on the preclinical development of these agents and uh, and subsequently. And he said, we, we knew based on, you know, animal studies before this ever came to market, we, we had radio labeled gadolinium that we would inject into animals and it didn't all come out. So it was going somewhere. Now, uh, it's it's really in micromolar quantities. It's something like a millionth of the, the gadolinium that you inject will stay around typically in bone and liver and kidney and to some extent in brain, which we'll get to, I suppose. But um, as far as we know, that uh, that very minor amount of retention is not harmful, uh, but it, it does occur and it's expected 
really for all agents uh, to some extent. And so in reality, from a historical standpoint, all of this was known and published way before NSF was discovered. And in fact, NSF didn't exist before this time period, did not exist. And in, in fact, the, uh, the dermatopathologist Sean Cowper from Yale, in his early papers on what was originally called uh, nephrogenic fibrosing dermopathy, but then came NSF, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, his statement was perhaps a new pathogen exist, right? Something new, not pathogen, uh, toxin, toxin. Perhaps a new toxin exists and trying to figure out what this was. And so then when, when this all came around and when NSF finally, you know, when all the papers were published and all the dust settles, it appears, although if I'm not mistaken, we still don't know the the full pathophysiology of NSF. The reality is it just seems to occur almost universally with patients who are in significantly poor renal function, among other things as well, very sick population and with not all, not with all agents that not every agent carries the same risk of NSF. And here, then this came the, uh, ACR grouping, correct? That's right. The ACR grouped the the original uh, linear agents, Optimark, Omniscan, and uh, Magnavist into group one because those had relatively higher real world, just empirically observed cases of NSF when you adjusted for the number of cases that a uh, number of patients who'd been given those agents compared to the macrocyclic agents uh, and multi-hands, those were all in group two because they had a much lower apparent risk of NSF. And let's, while we're talking about that, and you mentioned you mentioned multi-hands, let's talk about that now in the development of things. So here along comes a linear ionic agent. Uh, it's a DTPA backbone, uh, just, you know, like uh, Magnavist, but... The thing about it is it has a um, uh, interaction with proteins because of the side chain on it has an interaction with proteins similar to, very similar to the type of side chain that's on what in the U.S. we know as Eovist, outside the U.S. as Primavist. And this interaction with protein results in a greater effectiveness of T1 shortening for the same dose. Again, increased, significant increase in relaxivity. And this was kind of thought it would be a game changer. But uh, as I remember, when this first came out, very few people got got the concept of relaxivity. It's like, what, what the crap is that? <laughs> it was, that was kind of an interesting time when that first came out. Well, and just to put some numbers on it, um, the traditional agents uh, up until Multihance had a relaxivity, a little R1, of around four, give or take. And uh, Multihance had a relaxivity of around six or seven. And um, that translated into a single dose of Multihance at 0.1 millimole per kilo, giving you similar uh, behavior to a double dose of those traditional agents. So it was it was very significant in terms of 
uh, at least CNS crossover studies and also I think intravascular MRA, <clears throat> where a lower dose of multi-enhance could give you equivalent performance or a standard dose could give you greater performance. So this to me was a real, uh, real uh, change uh, that you know, affected not only our clinical practice, but how we think about relaxivity and contrast agents. And we saw proof that uh, higher relaxivity was really useful. Well, not only in CNS, as you mentioned, CNS, but MR angio, which in most cases, people were giving higher dose. Cardiac, which is for the most part off-label, but nonetheless, uh, you know, typically classically had been higher dose. And um, one of the things I want to get Kristen's uh, input on this one, particularly with the higher relaxivity, had to do with the effectiveness in breast imaging. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's been something that um, once Multihans came out for a long time with the standard agents, you know, we weren't able to um, actually even see some of the actual um, enhancement that um, really made a difference as far as whether um, a patient would fall under the level of BIRADS 2 or BIRADS 3, which there's really a differentiation as far as follow-up. And um, I know that just being able to use the high relaxivity agent, and then also you have to think about, um, you know, well, we're talking about stability as well, you know, as far as, you know, its track record, these patients with, with breast cancer and the diagnosis of, they come back for multiple MRIs. And so um, it was important, important because it wasn't just about visualizing, yeah, the speculation was really important, but also the additional um, enhancement that was actually seen and, and shown in multiple papers. Um, I have to really give it back to Christiana Cool. She's um, she's in Europe, but she has done so much over the years with the evolution of, of breast imaging and just being able to see that enhancement with the high relaxivity agent is, is really, it's a game changer and, and why most facilities, you know, no matter what agent they use for all other parts of the body, it seems to be just speaking from what I've heard word of mouth is that they, they literally, they use a multi-hands definitely when they're doing breast imaging. I don't know if you guys have heard that. Well, I think that's, uh, that's probably true. I don't have numbers on it, but I do know, uh, one of the papers that came out that drove that direction uh, is the Martinsich paper where they uh, did a crossover trial of uh, standard dose multi-hands versus standard dose Magnavist. And they picked up almost 12% more cancers, breast cancers, uh, that with multi-hands than with the standard agent. And, you know, when you talk about safety and risk benefit profiles and what patients want from their contrast agent. There's another paper by Woolen in European radiology. They asked breast cancer patients, what do you want in your contrast agent? The number one uh, feature was sensitivity to disease detection. So it's not just us saying, well, that looks better and I can pick up more cancers. When you ask patients, well, what do you want? They want a high relaxivity agent for that sensitivity of uh, cancer detection. Well, then I also think about with the abbreviated breast protocols, people that are at medium risk, they're paying out of pocket um, and they're going to these centers. Obviously, if, if there is a question because I have fibrous you know, breast or something and I'm at medium risk, but insurance won't pay for it, I can pay for it out of my pocket. Obviously, my family's going to come up with the four or $500. I'm going to go to a facility 
I'm definitely going to want the high relaxivity agent to be able to actually just determine if I have a mass anywhere. And so, um, you know, I know you guys have all these fancy international, very hard to pronounce names of these papers with the exact <laughs> numbers, which I'm super impressed about, um, just so you know. Um, but that is, you know, what I believe. And I'm also going to say about the abbreviated breast protocols that they're also being done, you know, just at regular facilities that are doing them daily as well. But if I was to choose to go and, and have an exam and pay out of pocket because insurance wouldn't cover it because I'm at medium risk, I would want to have a high relaxivity agent. Did you just call me a pencil headed geek? <laughs> I didn't say anything, Howard. I did not. I, I, did, I did not. Uh, she threw some shade. She threw some shade that way. Yeah, I okay, she, I heard it. Yeah, well, well, okay. So, so then you've got the. So now we got this relaxivity thing that's a really big deal, and actually shows that we can use a lower dose and get similar results. In some studies, you you want that bigger effect. In some studies, you don't necessarily need it. And you can use a lower dose. And in fact, for many years now, the ACR in their uh, contrast media manual says that a radiologist should use the lower, the lowest dose necessary, necessary to get the results. Correct. I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's been out there for quite a few years. That's, that's what they say, but. I've always sort of squirmed when I hear that because how do you know up front what's the lowest dose needed? Let's say I'm looking for brain metastases and we know that a higher dose could potentially show more um, or a higher relaxivity agent could show more. You know, I, I, I apply that rule for sure when I'm doing first pass studies like uh, MRA uh, with, you know, time resolved MRA and with the studies like perfusion in the brain. There, you're just looking for the signal to noise and the performance. I think when you talk about parenchymal imaging, you know, for brain tumors, unless it's something like a meningioma, uh, it's safer to go with the full approved dose of 0.1 millimol per kilo. And, you know, that that choice is, and, and that dose is going to depend on, you know, your your pulse sequences and what you're looking for and so forth. So it's it's not as easy as it sounds to use the lowest dose possible. Well, especially if you've got an agent that's, you know, knowing the effectiveness of it, right? And, and, and you know, I remember talking to a radiologist one time and, and talking to him about use of higher relaxivity, especially for brain patients with multiple, you know, with metastasis. And, and the, he actually said to me, well, I don't know if it's important that you see all the lesions. And I think I said back to him, well, maybe in your brain, but, uh, yeah. you know, in my brain, <laughs> I'm kind of wanting to see all the lesions. Well, speaking of brain, then let's kind of move quickly into the next kind of phase of development of this. We, um, you know, I was always to told gadolinium doesn't cross an intact blood brain barrier. Apparently that's not true, but the amount of gadolinium that's retained in brain tissue is of all the tissues where it's retained is the least is in brain tissue. Correct, Howard. I mean, it's That's, very. I mean, it's it's infinitesimally small. It's but. very small. But the the thing is, you can see it with your eyes because if patients have had multiple doses, particularly of some of the linear agents uh, previously, 
your pre-contrast T1s actually show you bright signal in certain deep gray nuclei, like the dentate nucleus of the yeah. parabellum and the, the globus pallidus. These are areas that normally pick up iron, so you're used to seeing them dark on T2 star images, but they also pick up gadolinium. Um, and it's it's uh, also uh, donated to those areas by macrocyclics, but at much smaller uh, levels. Uh, these are asymptomatic. An article just came out today in AJNR uh, saying that uh, MS patients with T1 shortening in these nuclei have no apparent uh, additional cognitive or neurologic uh, deficits uh, related to gadolinium deposition. And that's just one of many papers that said that. But you can see it. And it it's, you know, it's uh, something that we would like to avoid if we could, I think. Sure. I mean, if you don't, if you don't need it, you, it's kind of like radiation. If you don't need it, you don't need it. Right. Right. <laughs> if you need, right. And so, uh, you know, with this, it's, it's not only been shown that the macrocyclic agents will, um, will leave behind a smaller amount, significantly smaller amount. I mean, it's still low, but significantly, but also over time, animal studies, they use rat studies for this. I don't know, Howard, if you know why they use rats for these studies. I think you yeah. told me because lawyers are too expensive, Bill. They are. Lawyers are just way too expensive to use, right? So you have My to use these rats. My daughter's a lawyer, Bill, by the way. <laughs> okay. Well, and I'm sure she's expensive, right? She, she is. She has, she has to pay, right? Okay. So- you know, so they but use. Also um, really nice. I mean, there are. <laughs> I have a lot of lawyers in my family as well, too, William. Well, that's all right. Well, I went to high school with a guy that's my been my lawyer, personal lawyer for years. Anyway, <clears throat> the point is, uh, I believe, if if I'm not mistaken, five uh, five weeks in a rat is about is the equivalent of like three years in a human. So they can do a lot of long term studies with these, and in studies that look out like 52 weeks in rats uh, following the administration of gadolinium, num number one, not only are the macrocyclics significantly lower in the amount of deposition, but the clearance over time is much greater than it is with the macrocyclics. Macrocyclics are there and they don't tend to, to go, I mean, linears are there, they just don't tend to go away. Macrocyclics, on the other hand, clear out more over time. It's important to recognize that even the macrocyclics take a little while to wash out. I think uh, the Mayo Clinic they did a study of patients getting the macrocyclic uh, gadabist, gadabutrol, and they did lumbar punctures on them uh, over the next month or so. And, you know, most of it cleared pretty quickly within 100 or 150 hours. But there was uh, gadolinium detection in, I think it was 68 patients. All of them had it out to about a month. So, you know, it's still leaching out, but most of it it clears very quickly. So, so here's kind of the thing, folks. And this one I want to lead to for what we what we've been talking about, going back to Howard's, you know, what we're going to tell you and what we told you, is checking those boxes. What we'd like in patients who you know who are going to get multiple studies, we know macrocyclic tends to be from a stability standpoint what we want, and we know that. Um, 
relaxivity is what we want. It's kind of like multi-coil, phased array, multi-coil. What you want is the sensitivity or the signal to noise of a small coil, but you want the coverage of a large coil. So what we want is we want the relaxivity, uh, higher relaxivity, but we'd like it in a macrocyclic agent, and we'd like to give as little of this as possible so here we have gadopiclinol. Now, gadopiclinol is based on a molecule. The term gadopiclinol, I've, I've been told this. So again, Howard, I'll, I'll get you to test me out in real time here. Uh, so the, if you break it down, gada, gad, the gad part, because it's got gadolinium, piclinol, uh, or the the pick part is because it's based on something called a picline or picline molecule, which has been in the literature for many years. It's a macrocyclic molecule with unbelievable um, stability in terms of strength of the bond. And the null part, NLL part, has to do with uh, additional chemical arms dealing with the interaction with water molecules. So it, it's it's a totally different type of molecule than what we've been using. And you pointed this out earlier. The key thing there is that unlike all previous gadolinium agents, which associate with one water molecule, this one associates with two. And so it ends up being about four times, three times the relaxivity of standard agents and about double even the high relaxivity multi-ant. So it has a little R1 of around 12 and that's persistent through standard field strengths and even higher at low field. So uh, it has that enviable combination of high stability and high relaxivity. The other thing about it that I've noticed is that it's, number one, it's a big honking molecule, and larger molecules tumble more slowly. So while probably about 60% of the relaxivity appears to be due to the incorporation of two water molecules in its inner sphere, it's got these three big arms that I've read uh, are referred to as um, hydrophilic arms that tend to interact with more water in the outer sphere of this molecule. And so you get an extra boost because not only does it incorporate an extra water molecule in its inner sphere, it's slapping around water molecules in its outer sphere. I don't know if slapping around. So That's the yeah, I was going to ask yes. Howard for like something other than like slapping around as it's going around <laughs> in a circle. Uh, Is it just about, beating up extra water molecules or could you maybe break that down into something a little bit more? Like, to, get, in, get in my belly. Get in my belly. Right? Slower so, tumbling anyway, rate. I'm sorry. <laughs> slower molecular tumbling rate. How's that sound? Right. Yes, a, a slower so, molecular tumbling rate is typically how we describe relaxivity um, as it increases in general. But if you want to slap around those water molecules and you get those oh, hydrophilic oh. arms in there, and it's going to do it. It's just going to do it. Oh, yeah. You're going to do it. Here, take this. Oh, Bill. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, I didn't do well in chemistry. So one of the things that um, when you look at the studies, the preclinicals, the clinical trials, uh, dose-finding studies, and this is, this is extremely important to, for listeners to understand. In terms of the amount of gadolinium in the bottle, uh, gadapiclinol agents are uh, formulated in uh, 
0.5 molar concentration, which means the same number of gadolinium molecules in a bottle as every agent with the exception of gadavist, which is one molar concentration. Again, gadavist is, has got about 17% higher relaxivity, but in terms of its clinical effectiveness per dose, it's been shown to be equivalent to the other agents. You wind up giving less of a volume with Gadavis because it's double molar concentration. So somebody my size would get 20 mLs of everything else, and they get the same amount of gadolinium molecules as if you gave me 10 mLs of Gadavist. So in terms of dose, at this point, we've all been the same. But what's interesting about gadopiclinol, the standard dose of gadopiclinol is 0.05 millimoles per kilogram. That means a standard dose is equivalent to half of what you would give for a any of the other agents. So somebody my size Instead of getting 20 mLs of this agent, I would get 10, and that would give me uh, half the number of gadolinium molecules that I would be getting from a, a standard agent, but I would get the effect of at least, if not more, depending on the agent, um, of an effect from that. In other words, uh, giving... A Half the amount of gadolinium with gadopiclinol gives you equal or better uh, contrast uh, behavior, relaxivity than any of the other agents. Right. I mean, if you were if you were comparing it to say multihance, it would probably be it would be equal. The study showed more equal. If you're comparing it to a, uh, a an agent standard relaxivity agent, it would actually be better at half the dose. That's right, and. Uh, it's it's particularly um, interesting to note that just like all the other agents, there were dose-ranging trials in animals and in humans, and uh, they picked this, uh, I believe they picked the half dose uh, compared to others because it gave excellent performance and it can then be used uh, at a lower exposure rate to the population. Now, the one thing I want to make sure we get in here before we go back to the dosing, because there's a couple of couple of interesting things that um, that that we're we're going to be looking at I think going forward one of them has to do with and I think it's very very important to give a comparison of the stability of gadapiclinol agents if you if you start with uh, let's say prohance okay first off Kinetic stability can be thought of as the rate at which a gadolinium agent will begin to disassociate. In normal human body pH for macrocyclic agents, this can be, Howard, am I correct, years. I mean, like like many, many years, yeah. like long time. But the kinetic stability is usually measured in a stressed way under acidic conditions and so forth. So right. it's sort of worst case scenario. Well, that's what I'm saying. If you if you've tried to measure it in normal pH of human body, you'd never get it because it would just never dis, it would it would take a long time to disassociate. So so the way they measure it in a laboratory in a test tube is under highly acidic, chemically stressful conditions, and that's at a pH of one, highly acidic. So if you look at the worst case scenario, dead human, 
acidic conditions. Prohance would be four hours in terms of disassociation half-life. Gadavis, and this is based on a paper published in Investigative Radiology. I'm not pulling these out of the air, just so you know, uh, by Dr. Robick uh, in Investigative Radiology in 2019. So Prohance is four hours. Uh, Gadavist is 18 hours. Uh, Gadaterate, which is Dotorim and Clariscan, again, same same compound sold under different trade names. Uh, Dotorim versus Clariscan is somewhere around four days. Gadapiclinol, again, VUA or Lucerim, Gadapiclinol is around 20 days. That's even under the worst case scenario. So this, this agent is five times more stable than the next closest agent. E- extremely stable agent, and I don't think that can be overemphasized enough. I agree. There, there are some other chemical differences that it sound pretty acceptable. Um, Gedopiclinol does have a higher viscosity uh, compared to other gadolinium agents, um, as I'm sure you remember, viscosity is measured in uh, Pascal seconds or Newton seconds per meter squared. And of course, actually, of milli, course. Milli pas- actually, actually, it's millipascals. Uh, in right. terms, of, I was sorry. Absolutely, That's true, I was going to correct both of you on that if you didn't get it. Correct. I, well, well, excuse me, but I think <laughs> I, just I know if it gets this. a little bit more sticky on my finger, then it's a little bit more viscous. Well, this is how you remember it. So the, the original was Newton seconds per meter squared. And if you've ever tried to inject a fig Newton through a small intracath, <laughs> you realize just how bad it can get. But uh, back to yeah. uh, the millipascal seconds, wow. the, vis- the viscosity of gadopiclinol is 7.6. Most of the agents we, we've been using are somewhere around two to four or so. So it's a little bit higher. But just for reference, um, other agents that we use in the clinic all the time, like Omniscan 350, that's 10.4 millipascal seconds. So it's it, and you're giving a lot smaller volume. So uh, that hasn't apparently been a problem. The in, injection site reactions are the commonest of the very rare reactions, uh, but they're similar to other agents. So that doesn't seem to be a problem. Uh, the osmolality of it is... 850 milliosmoles per kilo of water um, compared with, you know, somewhere around 600 to 2000 for the other agents. So it seems to be very similar uh, and acceptable for some of the other parameters we'd be looking at. Yeah, that's it. That's the thing to understand for some of you that listening that have CT experience, what you're injecting with iodine is far more viscous than what we inject with uh Gadolinium. And to, and to Howard's point, we give a much lower volume. The other thing, though, to go back to the osmolality part of it, which is interesting, is uh, that gadopiclinol is not only macrocyclic, but it's also non-ionic. Non-ionic is going to give it uh, the, the lower osmolality. And in fact, uh, gadopiclinol is actually closer in osmolality to prohance than it is to dotorim and clariscan, which are ionic. And it's it's about half of gadavist from an osmolality standpoint, and more than half, um, well, about half, I guess, with, with multihance as well. So from an osmolality standpoint, um, it, it's it's actually pretty low considering, you know, 
it's a it's a big honking molecule. Yep. And you know, to me, one of the biggest things, and I don't know, Bill or Kristen, if you've uh, run into this yet, but since this is a, a new agent, it, uh, I don't know where ACR is going to stand on this. Presumably, they'll have to at least temporarily put it into the group three. We haven't seen a whole lot of cases category with respect to NSF. And does that mean one of the side effects here uh, in practice would be we'd have to test renal function. Of course, the FDA says we should test renal function in everyone. And that medication guide that we hand to our patients before injection says that. But the ACR has said, well, we have tens of millions of doses on these agents. And we know if it's a group two agent, you don't have to test uh, in a practical way. But will that be something temporarily that you need to do? Or do you go based on the preclinical studies and the human studies so far and say, well, it's probably very safe and probably not a risk for NSF. I, I don't know if you have an opinion or if you've heard others speak on that yet. I have an opinion. I mean, I think that people, uh, well, you know, I think all all of us have an opinion. But, I have an opinion. Yeah, there's don't, a famous saying, but I'm not going don't go there. there. Don't go there. No, I know. Don't go there. Um, no, my opinion is that uh, there are there are facilities that are have a lot of trepidation about this agent. It's new. It's different. No, obviously, what is it? The lally effect, where everybody's going to puke, everybody's going to get sick, you know. But then everything's going to you know normalize, and it's going to be fine. And so, in that interim period where it does fall underneath, when you haven't given enough doses which is, you know, Eovist and the previous, you know, Alvivar was down there before it went, you know, it's off the market now. Um, you know, just I I think that people might change their stance on how they approach that where they were typically following what the ACR said, just because there's not enough data, but they can't look at what data is out there and make their own decision saying, oh, we, we probably don't need to be doing this. It's an extra step. You know, just like giving out this, you know, medication guide has been useless since the beginning, but they might kind of lean on the more, um, uh, let's let's be uh, more of a careful cover ourselves type of a stance. And then there's other facilities that are really forward thinking that have always been forward thinking that I'd be like, oh, it's not necessary because we've read the papers out there and this is absolutely not something we need to be doing. So, uh, you know, Billy, what do you think? Uh, two, two things to look at this. Number one. Um, the fact that it's well-documented, it's five times higher the stability than the next closest agent, Dotarep. Also, if you look at the package inserts, the package inserts say that you don't have to reduce the dose of this for patients who are in renal failure. So if you take the, the fact that scientifically shown for, for at least a decade that this type of molecule is, um, you know, five times the stability of the other agents, knowing what we know about NSF, um, I can easily see why some people would choose to go, yeah, I'm not really worried about checking renal function with this agent. Um, and, and I think they would be well justified in that. And again, because the package insert says you don't have to, um, you don't have to reduce the dose. Howard, back back to you on that after that. If I were putting on my FDA hat, I'd say you should be checking renal function and everyone getting gadolinium, you know, and yeah, if I were putting on my FDA hat, I'd be getting another job. But then again, (laughs) but But I think, I think, you know, no matter what is done now, at least we'll, we'll, 
will effectively move it to group two. That would be the prediction uh, fairly soon once it gets on the market and we get some, you know, hundreds or thousands of doses and in patients with NSF risk factors. But I think if I were giving it to a patient with NSF risk factors, I'd probably at least document it, why I was giving it and, you know, um, that I was aware of it. And we know from the label, you don't have to reduce the dose and so forth. Um, let me let me ask you this, though. One more thing before we get out of here. I mean, we're getting close to time, but, I, you know, this is an interesting point. I wonder. So so let's say you're comparing this. Let's forget. Let's let's don't think about brain metastasis. Let's just look at, you know, other uses for it. Uh, if if 0.05 millimole per kilogram of gadapiclinol will give me the um, will give me a better, better effect than 0.1 of a standard relaxivity agent, i.e. anything but multi-hands, so let's say pro-hands, okay, right. then um, could I get away with 0 0.025? Could I get away with even less? Um, pituitary, uh, meningiomas, uh, lumbar spine, uh, you know, some useless thing in muscles, you know, musculoskeletal, like, you know, whatever, you know, but it, it seems conceivable, but I think, you know, for now it, it, it makes sense to go with the approved dose, uh, and mm -hmm. see how it behaves and then individualize, uh, you know, the, the dosing as you, as we move forward and get more experience with it. I, well, I think that's a wise, wise, uh, Wise guy. That's comment. why I'm not a radi that's why I'm not a radiologist. Nor did I sleep in a Holiday Inn Express last night. But but let me ask you this, Howard: Are there uh, are there situations when this is off label, yep. off label? Are there situations where one might consider going with zero point one millimole per kilogram of uh, gadapiclinol because in in reality. If you gave somebody 0 0.1 millimole per kilogram of gadopiclinol, you would not be giving them any more gadolinium than you would be giving them anyway. That's right. And I think um, the best example in our practice, at least, would be in stereotactic radiosurgery planning, you know, radiation therapy for multiple brain metastases or you know, a single met, are there more that we missed with our standard agent or our, even our up to now high relaxivity agent? So I think that's a situation where we'd be very likely to use 0.1 millimole per kilo of uh, gadopiclinol. And there's one little abstract in the literature showing that a little over half of patients uh, imaged with the gadopiclinol at, at the standard dose of 0.1 <laughs> that up till now. Uh, mm -hmm. that they they found more mets in more than more than half the patients now it was a very small study it was seven out of thirteen had more mets but if you're targeting metastases uh that could really change your treatment plan or if you went from zero to to one or one to five it's going to dramatically change things so I think that's why you're giving it and I think we would probably use it off label at a point one millimole per kilo dose. And, and I think that, you know, the thing that struck me when I when I heard of that is like, well, like I said, you're, you're not giving any more gadolinium molecules than you would be giving with, uh, with a standard agent. That's right. 
Kristen, any any final thoughts on this as we move out of here? No, no. I mean, I think I think everything you've said and all your dates and big names, everything's been very, very educational. <laughs> Don't be so viscous. <laughs> oh, no. We women, we There's can such, be very viscous, such, you such, know? Such high osmolality here. You know, yeah, I know. Just, There's I'm, a I'm, lot. Of, wow. And you end with such great, great things. I would just, as my kids say, slay all day with the two of you. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Howard, anything, anything you want to say before we get out of here? I want to say thank you, Bill, for not beating me up too much today. Oh, and I felt that one. I did. Wow. Oh, geez, y'all are killing me. Okay, folks, thank you all so much for taking the time to join us uh, on this particular topic. Trust me, we've got we got more things coming up on uh, uh, got a all because one of the things that we we haven't really mentioned, or we did mention it, but we didn't quite grow around to it. It's got it's got more labeled indications than any other gadolinium agent, uh, you know, not only for CNS, but also for body, for uh, uh, thorax, which includes breast. And so uh, there's more to come on this. Uh, it, it's, it's an exciting time in MRI. Uh, glad I lived long enough to see it. Uh, Kristen and Howard, thank you all so much for taking time out for the podcast today all right much obliged (laughs) all right you all take care and everyone listening thank you very much you have a great rest of your day unless you have other plans we're out of here you just have to get over it see you next time thanks goodbye you've been listening to mri cast This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics.